0: Listening to Ohio v. the World, an Ohio history podcast, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to the history of the Buckeye State. Stream and donate to the show at Ohiovtheworldpodcast Now, here's your host, Alex Hasty.
1: Hey guys, welcome back. It's episode 2 of season 2 of Ohio v. The World. Today we're going to be going back to the 1830s and we're going to be talking about Michigan and Ohio. It's Michigan week here in Columbus. Ohio State plays Michigan next week in the regular season finale up in Ann Arbor. The greatest rivalry in college sports and arguably the greatest rivalry in all of American sports. Today we're going to be looking at the border war, called the Toledo War, and how Ohio and then what was called the Michigan Territories, Michigan was not yet a state, they would become a state at the end of this conflict as part of a compromise that's finally reached between the two states and the federal government. But today we're going to be talking about how the rivalry started, how an actual war existed between the two countries in 1835 and 1836. We'll look at all the cast of characters, President Jackson, the two governors of the states, the boy governor, Stevens T. Mason of Michigan, and Robert Lucas of Ohio, and other historical characters that made their first appearances in in American history during this weird little war. We're so glad to be bringing you new shows this year. Uh, We've had an amazing response since the launch uh, just a couple of days ago. Um, A great article in the Columbus Alive about, about the podcast. So go check that out um, at ColumbusLive.com. And also, we are appearing on another podcast uh, just released this weekend called Whiskey Business. We were on last year before we launched uh, Whiskey Business, a really fun show hosted by our friend Dino Tripotis of Sunny95. He's the morning host down here, and he has his own podcast. We drank a bunch of uh, Upper Peninsula, Michigan whiskey, and talked about this, uh, this Toledo War, um, and we had just a great time. So go look them up on iTunes. Again, it's Whiskey Business, uh, and you'll see you know, our, our episode about the rivalry. But today our guest is John Shirk. He's a graduate, undergrad, and law school graduate of the University of Michigan, a true Wolverine. John's an attorney up in Grand Rapids. Uh, and he's very knowledgeable on the subject, and we're glad we got connected with him. Uh, and thank him so much for joining us. He, he did a great job. Our beer for the episode today, uh, John sent us down a, a six-pack of a beer we've had a lot here in Ohio for many years. But we're going to have a Michigan beer today. And it's right out of his backyard from Bell's. Today we're drinking Two-Hearted American IPA from Bell's up in Michigan named for the Two-Hearted River in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan that we'll be talking about as part of uh, today's story, part of that Toledo War. It's uh, 7%, like I said, an American IPA, Centennial Hops, which a lot of great beers have, kind of a Pacific Northwest uh, hops that they base it out of. Really good beer, um, and it's been down here in Ohio for years, so I'm not going to tell you where you can go get it. Almost any major bar or tavern is going to have some Bells too hearted that you can try. So as we always do, we encourage you to grab the beer. Uh, and while you're listening to the episode tonight or this afternoon, uh, grab a Bells, have a beer with them uh, while you listen to our episode, Ohio versus the State Up North. So thanks to John again for sending down some Bells to us. Um, and we're drinking one right now. Michigan and Ohio State. The game, as it's called. I never miss one down here in Columbus, even made the trip up to the big house to watch it, to watch the rivalry in person up there. Miss Ohio, v the world, and I have attended the last two Michigan-Ohio State games. I've run on the field after many an Ohio State victory over, over the hated team up north. And As we prepare for the latest installment, it reminds me of last year's game, when number two Ohio State played number three Michigan right here in my backyard at the Horseshoe. The game goes to double overtime, a game Michigan should have won. They outplayed us. They had critical turnovers in the red zone, um, gave up a defensive touchdown, just made enough mistakes to keep us in the game. In double overtime, Ohio State trails by three. And On fourth and one, J.T. Barrett takes a direct snap, runs the ball, and looks to be short. The ball's marked. They go to review. They look at the spot. The officials are looking at a measurement. It's a great analogy for what we're going to be doing today because it was Michigan and Ohio State that were depending on a line, a measuring line between where Ohio State or where Ohio ended as a state and where Michigan's southern, southeastern boundary should be. They reviewed the call and decided that Barrett had just barely made the first down. We went crazy, and on the next play, Curtis Samuel runs it in on the right, on the left side. Ohio State wins in double overtime and moves on to the college football playoff. We won't talk about what happened after that, but a great win. And we stormed the field, and Michigan's coach, the complete psychopath, Jim Harbaugh. Our coach, the legend Urban Meyer, and Michigan's coach, Jim Harbaugh, both born in Toledo. Little-known fact about today's episode: both coaches born in Toledo, both raised in Ohio. But we play you a clip of Harbaugh freaking out after the game. Um, he was just pouting, and he's so upset. He's he's furious with the spot of the ball, the line that Ohio State he didn't think they had crossed. He thought Michigan was wronged. See, I'm
0: bitterly disappointed in the officiating. I can't make that any more clear. So my view on the first down was that it was that short. Okay, Short? short. What'd you say? Short. short. It's outrageous. i okay. been really disappointed with the officiating. That's how I feel right now. thought there some outrageous goals.
1: Much like that game, our guest today, John Shirk, argued that Michigan was wrong when it came to the boundary that they were right to to fight the boundary with the Toledo War, that Toledo should not be in Ohio. Instead of being the fourth largest city in Ohio, it should be Michigan's second largest city behind the urban hellscape that is Detroit. We'll talk about how Ohio won this measurement as well. We'll ask John Shirk who really did win the Toledo War, the Michigan-Ohio War. We'll talk about the famous American historical figures involved, the politics being played back in D.C. that played such a large role in the outcome of the Toledo War. So without further ado, let's go back to the 1830s, for when we first started to not give a damn about the whole state of Michigan, it's Episode 2, Ohio vs. State Up North. couple of quick facts about the Michigan Ohio State rivalry in the numbers Michigan fans will always tout that they lead the series 58-48 it's really 58-49 we don't count the 2010 shellacking we gave them due to some tattoos that some players on Ohio State didn't pay for but in the 21st century Ohio State is 14-2 against Michigan 14-2 Urban Meyer, 5-0 and against this, this team up north, as he calls them. In fact, Michigan shouldn't be winning the overall rivalry either, except that we have to count the first 16 times we played them. We didn't win until our 16th game. Uh, and that was, you know, basically we're 46-39-4 since 1927, since before the stock market crash and the Great Depression when President Calvin Coolidge still walked the halls of the White House. So Michigan fans can just continue to hold on to that number, um, and we'll get that in my lifetime. We'll finally eclipse them in total wins in the series. One of the first times we ever beat them, my great uncle, Wilbur Isabel, a man who scored the first touchdown in the Ohio Stadium history, um, a man who used to block, for the great Chick Harley, one of the great first great Ohio State running backs. My great-uncle Wilmer had one of the first wins ever against the University of Michigan. But the rivalry is so important in Michigan week and the buildup that just beating your rival, whether you're from Michigan or from Ohio, that win can sustain you all the way through the spring and summer of the next year. It feels that good to win. But this rivalry started nearly 200 years ago. Ohio becomes a state in 1803. But based on some early maps, this area that we look at as the upper Midwest, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, Ohio, Wisconsin, was all laid out, for the most part, by the Northwest Ordinance in 1787 following the Revolutionary War. And the Northwest Ordinance read, that a line shall basically divide the state of Ohio, or the Ohio Territory, in the Michigan Territory. That line will be drawn directly east from the southern tip of Lake Michigan. We talked to our guest, John Shirk, about how if that was the line, the Northwest Ordinance Line, that originally was set up, that wouldn't include Toledo. It would be well south of the Maumee Bay. So how did we go from this original interpretation to Toledo ultimately becoming such an important port for the state of Ohio, the glass city no longer being in Michigan. It has to do with maps and mistakes on early maps. We asked John, who loves maps, an amateur cartographer. He shared with me some of his great ancient maps that he's got from the Northwest Territory. And we asked him about how they played such a crucial role in the Toledo War.
2: Yeah, so... I've always been interested in maps. I don't know if you, if you look at the history of maps and cartography, you find some very interesting things. So one of the more interesting things about maps is what's on them and what's left out of them. And if you look at some of the old maps, particularly some of the early maps, the European maps of the New World, they were filled with all kinds of different irregularities. You'll find an island off the coast of California that doesn't exist when you look at the dispute between ohio and michigan over uh, over the boundary line there it's all based on an early map the best maps of the day from this part of our country were probably the french maps they'd been in this area for a lot longer as fur traders and the like from the 1600s
1: yeah especially in michigan
2: especially in michigan especially in the northern parts of michigan in fact one of the oldest settlements in North America is located in the upper peninsula of Michigan, Sault Ste. Marie. And that, that part of Michigan was, was pretty well charted and well known. When you get down a little further South, it was less well known in fact. And uh, um, the early maps were a little skewed. And so when the Northwest territory was defined, which outlined the regions of, from which these States were going to be taken, Michigan and Ohio, there was, um, there was a line drawn across that was supposed to go from the southernmost part of Lake Michigan all the way across to Lake Erie. And that's the line that's in dispute between Michigan and Ohio at this time. Uh, but the reality was that the early map that Mitchell drew and on which this territory was based was incorrect. It was wrong. It drew the southern point of Lake Michigan almost a full degree north of where it actually sat. Hmm. And had that line been correct, there would have been no question.
1: Ohio would become a state in 1803. They drafted their state constitution, and they laid out their own borders. And when they sent to be ratified to Congress, they basically said that a line would extend northwest. So it would actually be a diagonal line instead of the straight line outlined previously it'd be a diagonal line to just barely include the Maumee Bay and the new burgeoning port of Toledo. We asked John about Ohio's early attempt to sneak Toledo into the state through their own constitution.
2: No, Congress actually, they kind of kicked the can down the road. By the time Ohio had been admitted into the state, pretty much everybody understood that the original line that was drawn from the southernmost point of Lake Michigan going all the way across would have fallen south of Toledo. And uh, this is something that, according to some of the stories, a, a hunter familiar with the southern part of Lake Michigan showed up in, the, uh, in Ohio at a time when Ohio was considering its constitution and convinced them that, uh, that in fact, the line would have fallen so- south of Toledo. I
1: mean, Toledo so they, would be in Michigan, yeah.
2: And Toledo would be in Michigan. And so they, they, um, they put this additional clause into the Ohio Constitution that specified that if, in fact, on a survey, the line would have fallen south, then it should be redrawn, es- essentially, to, to, mm. uh, to go north of Toledo.
1: Following the War of 1812, fought largely in Ohio and Michigan, this line finally starts to become an issue once again. Congress never settled it. The people between those states consider themselves some from Ohio, some from Michigan. Michigan's still a territory. It's not a state in the 1810s and the 1820s. But the boundary line becomes an issue as more and more people move into the area. A line is, is ordered by the U.S. Surveyor General Edward Tiffin, a former Ohio governor. How perfect, how convenient that he's going to be the one leading the charge. He has a man named Harris who's going to draw the line. There's other lines like the Fulton line that shows that the southern tip of Michigan, directly across, is much further south than the original maps had shown and does not include Toledo. We asked John about that Harris line, the Edward Tiffin, our former governor's line. That was drawn and how it sets up what became known as the Toledo Strip
2: well tiffin's an interesting character because he's the first governor of the state of ohio right Uh, so earlier obviously he uh, 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 a friend of the soil and later when he takes on the role as the surveyor of uh, the northwest territory he then is is able to specify pretty directly how he wants that line to be drawn and he does this, he hires Harris to draw the line and bring a survey crew ch- through and instructs him to make sure that the line is drawn
1: north of Toledo. And that's exactly what Harris then proceeds to do. We've got these two lines. We've got the Harris line and the Fulton line, which is coming you know, just as the Northwest Territory says. And those, that area in between is called what? Yeah, that's become known as the Toledo Strip. Okay, and that's what we,
2: you and I are fighting over. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and, and really, nobody was all that interested in, in much of what was uh, west of Toledo. It was mostly a fight about Toledo.
1: The Toledo Strip, this five to eight mile uh, strip of land north and south that included the city of Toledo all the way west to the Ohio-Indiana border. A 468 square mile area. And in the 1820s, this area becomes valuable. Michigan had begun setting up townships in the area, taxing its citizens in the 1820s as a territory. But Ohio wants that land and they want it. It's a great question why all this fighting over Toledo? Who cares? You might say that now, but back then, there's something called the Ohio Erie Canal. You really didn't move things on land. You moved goods and everything, people even, really largely moved over water. And when the Erie Canal out of Buffalo connects to Cleveland, the next connection that gets you into areas like Illinois and Indiana, all the way down to the Ohio River in Cincinnati, which can get you to the Mississippi all the way to the west, it goes through Toledo. There's still 11 million tons of goods shipped out of Toledo every year. But a lot of money goes into building the canal. And Ohio investors want to have that major port city be in Ohio. Toledo suddenly becomes more and more important. It slowly begins growing. And with all these competing boundary lines that have been drawn, now we've got a problem. We asked John about the Erie Canal and its role in the Michigan Ohio War,
2: so the the Erie Canal um, was recently completed, in, in in part enough to be able to. Uh, transport goods directly from the Hudson River in the east all the way over to the far eastern part of Lake Erie. Importantly, without having to deal with Niagara Falls and the change in elevation between the Great Lakes, which really, it, it made it impossible to um, to ship goods without offloading them off of ships and mm-hmm. then unloading them back up again or portaging or something like that. So it it, it greatly increased the availability uh, the ability of movement of goods from the East Coast into the uh, what was then the West. Toledo becomes a gateway to the West at that point.
1: The government hasn't settled this issue back in Washington. But as it begins bubbling up during President Andrew Jackson's first and into his second term beginning in 1833, we see the appearance of of Robert E. Lee for the first time in American history. First in his class at West Point, from a prominent Virginia uh, military family, Lee would end up marrying the granddaughter of George Washington. For the Army Corps of Engineers is called upon to draw a line, the new line that's going to settle this once and for all. Jackson also asked for an opinion from his, US, from his attorney general, Benjamin Butler. We asked John about the federal government's early attempts in the 1830s to settle the debate about the Toledo Strip of a man that would become known as General Lee. Well, he
2: based his finding on this third survey and essentially in favor of uh, Michigan that the, really the Fulton line should be followed.
1: The, the Robert E. Lee line? Exactly.
2: So Lee is a surveyor with the U.S. Army Engineer, and uh, he is called upon to help with with the third of three surveys that were conducted. And this one was supposed to try to resolve the difference between the Harris Line and the Fulton Line, uh, and it it was later in the game,
1: uh, and so he actually worked on that on that survey line. So he walked from from, you know, kind of the corner of Indiana, Michigan, all the way to Toledo or what?
2: Well, yeah, he worked on the survey line all the way across. And it turns out that the survey he worked on um, more closely followed the Fulton line. And I guess that's the first time the first time and probably the last time that he ends up siding with the north.
1: We can't go any further in the story without talking about the two prominent leaders of both Ohio and Michigan. We start with Robert Lucas, Ohio's governor, the man for which Lucas County would be named in just a few short years, Lucas County being the, the county in Ohio where Toledo is located. Robert Lucas was a political veteran. He was not to be trifled with. Rough and tumble politics back in the old 1820s and 1830s of, our, of the old republic. And Ohio was the West. It was still frontier country. We had cities like Chicago, Cincinnati, Some of the cities in the southeast, like Marietta, had grown. Places like Columbus and Cleveland were still very young. But Ohio was a growing power in the United States. By 1840, we'd actually have our first president from Ohio. It's becoming a place for shipping. It's becoming a place where everyone seems to be going, the Ohio craze, as everyone moves out west to start a new life. Ohio had clout. It had clout with a governor like Robert Lucas, that Michigan didn't quite have. Michigan's governor is fascinating. We talked to John a lot about Stevens T. Mason, the boy governor, as he's known. He's called the boy governor because he becomes the governor of Michigan at 24. Where were you when you were 24? I was still in law school doing God knows what. But Stevens T. Mason became the governor of the Michigan Territory appointed by General Jackson. We asked John about the boy governor. How do you become a governor at the age of 24? That's a record that's not going to be broken anytime soon.
2: Well, his story is an interesting one. Like so many of the prominent families of his day who lived in that area, he's actually not from Michigan. He was born in Virginia though, his father was, was from Kentucky. Um, a well-established family, a fairly well-off family originally. And uh, his father engaged on some business ventures, ended up losing a lot of money, uh, but was well-connected politically and received an appointment in Detroit and went to live in Detroit. And that's where Stevens T. Mason um, really cut his teeth politically. First of all, sort of helping out his father and then later receiving an appointment himself as the secretary of the Northwest Territory. As the secretary of the Northwest Territory, he worked very closely with the governor at the time. This was often outside of the state. He traveled around quite a bit. And while he was out, Stephen Mason had the opportunity to sort of stand in his stead.
1: Mason becomes governor at the age of 24 following the death of Governor Porter. Porter, who, uh, as John said, would very rarely be in Michigan, happened to go back to Detroit during a color outbreak, just his luck, and he drops dead. He's still buried in Detroit today. Mason takes over as governor, and immediately begins upping the ante on the boundary. The debate, and that's all it was at this time, the debate over the Toledo Strip moves to Washington. And it becomes a problem for President Andrew Jackson. Old Hickory, in his second term, is plagued and beset by complaints over this, uh, over this dispute. Jackson knows the Mason family. He knows Stevens, uh, Stevens T. Mason's father. He's the one who put him out in Michigan to become the secretary, the number two in the territory in the first place. He holds young Stevens in, in a high regard. But he also has a lot of pressure from the Democratic Party and, and people in D.C. for Ohio. Ohio's a state. We're fully operating in D.C. with senators and representatives. And we represent a constituency that had narrowly voted for President Jackson, something that he didn't want to lose in the upcoming 1836 election. Although he wouldn't be running, his hand picked successor, Martin Van Buren, would be. Jackson was, was torn. He didn't know what to do. We asked John about Andrew Jackson and his approach to this conflict, the Michigan-Ohio War. Well, it, in
2: fact, if you look at the entire history of the dispute here, there, there's a lot going on in the background. There's far more going on than simply a boundary dispute that happens because of an error on a map, although that's, that's obviously what... Um, without that error you wouldn't have this kind of a you wouldn't have this kind of an issue but uh, Jackson had just won an election and was interested in running for a second term as president ohio was a, a very important state at the time that had narrowly gone with Jackson in the previous election he really did not want to upset the electorate in the state of ohio at that time he, there were a number of friends of President Jackson on both sides, uh, some who sided with Michigan and some who sided with Ohio. So he was trying to find a solution that both sides could live with.
1: As pressure begins to ramp up, talks of building militias, sending them to, to claim the land is it, all, all the talk in Columbus and up in Detroit. The people in Toledo were very confused. We asked John, did they consider themselves Michiganders or Ohioans?
2: Well, it's interesting because both Michigan and Ohio tried to assert uh, governance over the territory and they did it in different ways. So, um, in parts of the territory where Michigan clearly had control, Michigan would control the, uh, the public offices by day. And at sometimes, um, Judges and the like would go and hold court in these offices by night. It seems that the city of Toledo, though, mostly felt that it was part of Ohio or should be part of Ohio. If that were not the case, then some of the subsequent um, attempts by Michigan and by Stevens Mason to uh, bring militia into Toledo in order to take control wouldn't have been necessary.
1: The boy governor takes a bold first step when he enacts what's called the Pains and Penalties Act, which basically makes it a jailable offense for anyone who's seen to be in the Toledo area showing allegiance for Ohio, voting in an Ohio election, paying Ohio taxes, holding oneself out to be a citizen of the state of Ohio. And he does begin to arrest people. This Pains and Penalties Act we asked John about and how it really is the galvanizing force to start The Toledo War in 1835.
2: Well, it was Mason's attempt, obviously, to enforce jurisdiction over the disputed area. And again, it wouldn't have been the sort of thing that he would have needed to do had Michigan actually um, had effective authority over the entire area. It wouldn't have been necessary to do that. Uh, But it it certainly raised the ire of Ohioans. Mason Mason was committed to enforcing it with whatever means were necessary, including arresting people. And that's exactly what he set about to do.
1: Things just got real. People are going to jail over whether they consider themselves a Michigander or an Ohioan. Militias begin to be raised. Governor Lucas is not going to give in to this petulant child up in the Michigan Territory. He's been through tougher political battles than this, and he decides to raise a militia, and he raises $300,000, which at that time was a huge sum of money, to raise a militia to go and reclaim the Toledo territory. But Mason's not to be undone. He says that we will give you hospitable graves. That's what he says to, to to the oncoming Ohioans. And Mason in the Michigan... Legislature raised $315,000. They won up Lucas, and men in both states began to be armed. Tensions flare up in the Old West, the Old Northwest, as they called it. The battle rages as well in the halls of Congress, in the White House. Back in D.C., everyone's got an opinion on what should be done. People who want a strong central government want the government to step in and settle it. They want Jackson to take care of it. Then you have people like John C. Calhoun, the famous senator from South Carolina, the great nullifier, who believes it's all a states' rights issue, and it's a hands-off. One of the most famous quotes about this entire thing is from our seventh president, John Quincy Adams, president from 1825 to 1829. He beat Jackson in a very controversial 1824 election. Quincy Adams has gone, and he's become a congressman from the state of Massachusetts, the only president to become a congressman following his, his years in the White House. We asked John just what was Quincy Adams' view of this, the great orator, and what was his famous quote that Michiganders still hold on to today as proof that they were in the right?
2: It's, it, it's a bit of hyperbole, but what he says is never in the course of my life have I known a controversy of which all the right is so clearly on one side and all the power so overwhelmingly on the other. <laughs>
1: it's that a pretty being- dramatic. Yeah, that being Ohio, and and it goes to to talk about just how much political pressure they were putting on in Washington. You know, this this war really takes place in two places. It takes place in the Toledo Strip, but also in the halls of Congress and at the White House.
2: Well, and and, and that's a great point. And John Quincy Adams had just lost the presidency to Andrew Jackson in the previous election. Mm Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's not surprising that uh, they would not see eye to eye on this. Now, it may be that John Quincy Adams went with the underdog, um, but it, it, it's a great quote, and Michiganders love the quote, but <laughs> it's an awful lot of hyperbole. It's certainly not the most um, um, unequal um, and um, unfair dispute ever in the history of the world. It was kind of funny when it's coming from a family that went through the, uh, the Revolutionary War.
1: As the calendar turns to 1835, the war between Michigan and Ohio begins. Governor Lucas sends a very well-publicized new surveying team up to basically declare the border. Very controversial move, especially with militias forming on both sides. But in the spring of 1835, they began their work, marking the line through the wilderness in northwest Ohio and southeast Michigan. But Michigan's militia is onto it. It's well known that they're somewhere out there, and they began looking for the surveyors to expel them from this territory, stop the survey. And it's at a place called Phillips Corner, as 50 members of the Michigan militia slowly creep up with their muskets through the woods upon the unsuspecting Ohio survey team. We asked John about the Battle of Phillips Corners. So to set this up a little bit, um,
2: going back to Mason as an agitator for a moment, he most certainly was the provocateur in all of this. Uh, Definitely by the Pains and Penalties Act and the attempt to enforce uh, Michigan authority over the territory, he he was begging for a fight on this issue, or it certainly seems that way. In response, Governor Lucas in Ohio um, allocated $300,000 to raise a militia to be able to respond. Now, the Michigan territory was not nearly as wealthy as, as the state of Ohio was, and $300,000 in that day was an extraordinary sum, and to raise it as a militia to deal with a a dispute with a territory was, was a, a fairly strong action by the governor of Ohio. Uh, so while Stevens-Mason w- was certainly the initial agitator in all of this, he, um, Governor Lucas upped the ante quite a bit with that militia. And then Mason responded by uh, allocating and raising $315,000 for Michigan's own militia Uh, What exactly these militias looked like, uh, it would probably be interesting if we could go back in time and see them. But some small contingency of the Michigan's militia met a surveying crew at Phillips Corner, which is this um, small place. There was apparently a log cabin there at the time and, and a field and a bunch of trees around it. Uh, and the surveying crew, as the story is told, was holed up in the log cabin, and they were met by about 50 members of Michigan's militia who were coming out of the trees and, and uh, firing lobs over the, over the log cabin and over the survey crew.
1: Yeah, and, and that s- sends them running, right?
2: Yeah, well, this, the survey crew had its own small armed contingent with them of, depending on the stories, between five and nine uh, guardsmen. Uh, but it wasn't enough to hold off 50 people coming out of the coming out of the forest with their guns and so they dispersed the survey crew but not all of them escaped and a number of them were arrested by michigan and were taken back
1: no one dies in the battle but many shots are fired dozens and dozens of rifles go off men are arrested and taken back to michigan they're jailed these are people that Governor Lucas had sent up there a team, surveyors and militia members from Ohio. There's howls of outrage in Columbus and all over the state that this upstart, this hotspur, as President Jackson would call the boy governor, is not only taking hostages, he's firing shots. He started a war and Ohio's determined to finish it. General Luke, Governor Lucas is actually up near Toledo when this happened. He had gone there and made sure that articles were written that he was in the area, claiming this Northwest part of this Toledo strip of Northwest Ohio for himself. It's here where you start to see the term Wolverine to describe someone from Michigan. The Michigan Wolverines, as they're called, the University of Michigan, that's a term that was given to them, a derogatory term, that was given to them from people like Governor Lucas, people in Ohio who said that these Michiganders were uncivilized, like a wolverine, which is known to be a scavenger, a dirty animal with really disgusting eating habits, very aggressive, and that's how they thought these Michigan uh, militias and the Michigan government and the boy governor were. They called them wolverines. We asked John about, about how that term came to be, and how Michiganders took it as a badge of honor.
2: Wolverine was seen as an irascible, wild creature that had no sense and was just going to attack anything that it could attack. And it was a name given in in the middle of this conflict as kind of a a derogatory term to the Michiganders. And I suppose they embraced it. That's why it's become the mascot for the University of Michigan.
1: Yeah, it's...
2: a, it's an open question whether there are really any wolverines in the state of Michigan yeah, or ever it, were.
1: Is there? Do you know?
2: You know, the last I heard, somebody claimed that they had caught a picture of a wolverine on a night cam, but I don't think it was ever verified.
1: That's <laughs> like Bigfoot up there. Right. You know? The summer of 1835, following the Battle of Phillips Corners, people began racing into the territory, skirmishing, arresting, fighting breaks out. Nothing organized, but all kinds of threats going on. It's said that Ohio is going to send 10,000 soldiers, Ohio militia up to the area, a number that would never even be close to accurate. Governor Lucas sends a team to, to Michigan to confer with President Jackson. President Jackson sent peace commissioners, but nothing could be settled, and things began to escalate. And in July, July 15th, 1835, we have our first casualty of the Ohio War. His name was Sheriff Joseph Wood of Monroe County in southeast Michigan. He went into Toledo to arrest a guy named Major Benjamin Stickney. Stickney was a prominent member of the pro-Ohio movement in Toledo uh, and had done things on behalf of the Ohio government in the territory. Sheriff Wood goes to Toledo to arrest Major Stickney, and he walks into a bar, and it's here in this bar that we have our first casualty of the Michigan War.
2: Yeah, well, this, this should be a lesson for anybody. Don't go into a bar um, unless you're prepared for something. So he ends up getting stabbed. Um <laughs> He ends up getting uh, stabbed in the leg and that that was the one and only casualty of the Toledo War. Physical casualty, anyway.
1: And he's stabbed by Stickney's son. I I love this name. What's his name?
2: What's his name? Two?
1: Two Stickney was the guy's name. The son of Major Major Ben Stickney. His second son that he had named Two. T-W-O. But Stickney stabs the sheriff and then makes a run for it and he's protected by the government of Ohio. The boy governor is sent into an outrage and demands that he be extradited to Detroit to face charges. But Governor Lucas won't do it. There's another small skirmish where militia members are firing across the Maumee River at each other. Nobody ends up hitting anybody. And nearly a very, very bad incident, when Ohio announces that they're going to hold court They're going to set up the Lucas County Common Pleas Court. As this whole buildup was going, Governor Lucas had drawn out and named the county Lucas County, including Toledo. It's still the name of the county today. An incredibly bold move by him that I give him really large props for. It's awesome. But in order to be a real place, you have to conduct business. You have to conduct a court. You have to swear in members of the local government, appointed or otherwise. And it's announced that they're going to have court in Toledo for the Lucas County Common Police Court. And the militia members, this is shortly after the the Stickney incident, they come down to Toledo and they're ready to stop them physically. Both sides will be armed. It has all the makings of this bloody incident that President Jackson's trying to avoid. And with the court proceedings scheduled to begin the next morning, The Michigan militia moves in. As the sun comes up, they move into the courthouse in Toledo and find that nobody's there. The Ohio representatives, in a genius move, had gone in in the middle of the night and at midnight, held Lucas County Common Police Court, had made a record of the proceedings and filed it, and were gone before the militia arrived. We asked John briefly uh, just about that situation and how it could have been worse.
2: Well, there was an incident where um, where a group of judges went in again under cover of night and were able to hold court. and uh, the the Michigan militia had gotten wind of this or or was concerned about it. it, was moving in, and the judges were able to get out in time. So that was a near battle.
1: Meanwhile in D.C., Andrew Jackson's had enough. None of his peace proposals have worked. It seems that neither side is willing to back down. And as the battle has gone on for almost the entire spring and summer of 1835, Jackson makes a bold decision. He removes the boy governor, who's been serving at his leisure, he removes him as governor of the Michigan Territory. Ohio has been holding up Michigan's statehood throughout this entire process in D.C., Blocking their attempts to become a state. They know if they become a state, they have a lot more clout and they have a lot more repercussions, whether it be the U.S. Supreme Court or other remedies to actually fix this situation in their favor. But Jackson doesn't care. He's had enough and he removes Mason. He's, he appoints another guy who people in Michigan do not approve of. He's booed. People throw tomatoes at him when they see him. He's an outsider. And five weeks later, their legislature schedules new elections, and Mason is re-elected in a landslide. The boy governor is governor once again.
2: Well, Jackson is is trying to force a resolution to all of this. He um, he sent in uh, a couple of negotiators or mediators, and was was trying to get Mason um, and Michigan to uh, to agree to a resolution and. The, the way that he did this and the way that Congress did this was to put a contingency into Michigan's admission into the union, which I think we both agree is, is pretty extraordinary and maybe the only time that that's happened to a state. I believe into it is. It brings to mind something that you had said earlier, which this was a battle that was being fought in two places at one time. I mean, it was kind of uh, – working its way out on the ground around Toledo and in the Toledo Strip. But back in Washington, D.C., it was really part of a larger debate that was going on about states' rights and the role of the federal government in, in a conflict that would ultimately bloom with the Civil War.
1: But after his election, Stevens T. Mason begins to t- change course. He sees the writing on the wall. Michigan's not a state. They haven't gotten any closer to becoming a state which was his goal. And in D.C., compromises are being thrown around, and the idea is that if Michigan will back down on Toledo, they'll be given the Upper Peninsula. They'll be given statehood. And more importantly, they'll be given the federal funding that goes with being a state. Michigan's broke. They're broke from fighting this war. They're broke from not being a state and being organized properly. And Mason begins fighting for the compromise. We talked to John about his efforts, initially unsuccessful, to end the Toledo War and accept the compromise being offered by President Jackson.
2: In addition to the contingency being laid on Michigan that she accept the boundary line as set forth in the Harris line in order to be admitted into the union, Michigan actually had to have a convention of assent of, of its people to agree to this. So Michigan had petitioned to become a state but in order to um, in order to become a state now she had to agree to the terms that were being imposed and and so a the legislature called for a con, uh, a convention of assent and uh, Stevens Mason oversaw that in September of uh, 1836 I believe thinking that they would accept this compromise because at this point Mason believed that the compromise was the only way to that Michigan was going to be admitted into the union and frankly Michigan was almost bankrupt the territory was almost bankrupt at this time because of the war right so mason had already determined that he was going to support the compromise at that point um the september convention came and there were more dissenters than assenters and so they voted not to accept the compromise this resulted in a hasty attempt to call another convention, but the convention wasn't called by the legislature. It was hastily organized, and it included delegates from, from all around the, the territory, uh, but arguably, it wasn't a formal convention of assent. This met in December in Ann Arbor in December of 1836 and was called the Frostbitten Convention or the Frostbite Convention.
1: The deal is struck... Whether it was a constitutional convention, whether Michigan should even be considered a state, that frostbitten convention accepts those terms. But what is the Upper Peninsula? Why didn't people want it? We know it now. Today, it's got a beautiful place to vacation, uh, incredible natural resources, um, a seemingly wonderful place. You know, sixteen thousand square miles in the Upper Peninsula. But we asked John about the up as we sit here and drink a a beer from the two-hearted river the two-hearted ale we asked john why didn't people want the upper peninsula
2: the view of the upper peninsula at the time by most people who didn't live up in the upper peninsula would have been that it's it's wild country it's a wilderness it's kind of ironic because it's it's pretty much the view that most of ohio had of the lower part of the, the territory of Michigan at that time. Right. They're wild people. They're wolverines. They're, this is all wilderness, uncouth, not civilized. And the general belief at the time was that the Upper Peninsula was simply a wilderness that would always remain a wilderness because it, was, uh, it didn't have a favorable growing season. It was so remote. So uh, generally speaking, the people of, of Michigan were not all that excited about about gaining the peninsula. However, uh, Mason believed that it was a valuable asset. Actually, by that time, again, he was in favor of admitting Michigan into the Union. He argued that within 20 years, the Upper Peninsula would be worth $40 million, which was a a huge sum at the time. It turns out he was wrong. It was uh, far more valuable than that once copper mining and iron mining had begun. Uh, I was born in the UP, so I, oh, nice. I spent. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, we, we sometimes talk about the annexation of the motherland, but we're, we're good <laughs> with it now. Yeah. There was, for, a long, for quite a while, there was, in fact, a separatist movement up in the UP. Really? Yes. Either to create a, a new state called Superior or even to uh, separate completely and become a separate country. It's a little bit crazy, but.
1: That's awesome. What was, the, what, what was the name of the, the state again? Or the, well, the, new the state of
2: su- Superior is what they wanted to call it as a state. And it was this, this movement was strong right up through the 50s, up until the Mackinac Bridge was finally built. So until that time, it really wasn't all that easy to get from one peninsula to the other, and the cultures were a little different.
1: Michigan should have been awarded Toledo. Toledo should be the second largest city in the state of Michigan. There, I said it. It doesn't feel good, but it's true. If you look at the way the line was supposed to be drawn, we asked John, should Michigan have won? And ultimately, who did win in the Michigan-Ohio War, the Toledo War of 1835 and 1836?
2: I would agree. It was pretty clear that the line was intended to be drawn from the actual southern point of, Michi- of Lake Michigan, regardless of where that ended up being. Right. And it didn't, didn't really speak of anything with respect to Lake Erie. It's just a, a line straight across from the southern point of Lake Michigan. Well, it all depends on, on what your definition of winning is. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, you know, we look back at something like this a uh, hundred and fifty, sixty, seventy, eighty 60, 70, 80 years later. And we think of it as kind of quaint. Okay. There's a bunch of people running around a swamp and the government has to step in and say, you get this and you get this other thing. Uh, to the people at the time, it was serious stuff, at least to the ones who were directly involved in it. It was serious stuff. And... Th- there really was a sense of winners and losers and at the time i i I think that the people of michigan who paid attention to this felt that they lost in the end probably turned out to be a pretty good deal for everyone ohio got toledo which the which they wanted and um fully expected to have and really the upper peninsula has been a fantastic uh, um, part of the state of michigan ever since
1: set. Toledo and the Maumee Bay are part of the Buckeye State. Michigan ends up being very successful at the Upper Peninsula. Tourism these days, but also logging, the copper mines, all those things that ended up fueling the industries and the factories that made Michigan such an economic powerhouse in the 20th century. A lot of those come from the Upper Peninsula. Stevens T. Mason would, would go on to die early at 31 died from an illness, and really died um, shamed politically. He was Michigan's first governor. He made them, he made them a state in 1837. Unfortunately for Mason and Michigan, the year they become a state is also the year of the panic of 1837, a major economic disaster throughout the country that strikes the new state of Michigan very hard. And Mason, in an attempt to gets the state some money, ends up losing some of the money he borrowed on a trip to New York. These state funds, they ultimately turn up, but the damage is done. He's disgraced and moves to New York with his new wife, a New York socialite, uh, and again, dies at the age of 31. There are ways to remember the Michigan-Ohio War all over. We asked John about it, but there's places like Tiffin, Ohio, in northwest Ohio, Lucas County, um... And there's markers along the border as well. We asked, John, what are ways that people can, can still remember um, the Michigan-Ohio War today and the battle for the Toledo Strip?
2: If you go through the Toledo Strip, uh, the one that I visited is at the Battle of Phillips Corner. So part of my interest in all of this is my daughter did a National History Day project on the toledo war when she was in eighth grade
1: that's right yeah you told me that
2: yeah and we spent some time uh, running around and we went we went along the toledo strip and we drove all the way to phillips corner and we spent some time there and so you can go there and it's well marked and you can see where the battle of phillips corner was fought uh, and there's other monuments throughout the strip that uh, the state of ohio has put in place one of the more interesting ones to go and visit is the marker seventy on the eastern, the easternmost boundary point marker seventy, um, which is on something that Michiganders call the Lost Peninsula, and it's there's a part of Michigan that is connected only to Ohio, and you have to drive through Ohio to get back to the mainland of Michigan from the tip of this peninsula because of where the the state line is drawn and the boundary marker is right there. When the boundary marker was placed then, I think it was uh, the two governors got together and um, there was a ceremony there and there's a plate that's that's on the boundary marker that lists all the people who are involved in that. And there's a legend on the boundary marker that says uh, it's an Irish proverb. Good fences make good neighbors.
0: From Garfield's tomb to the serpent Mound, From the big cities to the river towns First in flight, making history There's so many books you need to see I like reading And I like reading Tippecanoe and Tyler too From the Queen City to Erie Blue Edison and a man on the moon So many books, which will we choose? I like reading. I like reading.
1: Our book recommendation for today is The Toledo War by Don Faber. The Toledo War, the first Michigan-Ohio rivalry. Don Faber recently passed away this summer. He's a famous... Michigan Historian, um, really cool book. It really goes in-depth on all the political machinations in D.C., all the crazy things that happened between the two governments in those, in those weird war years in the middle of the 1830s. So check out Don's book, written in 2008. Uh, like I said, he recently passed away. He has another book about Stephen's team, Mason, uh, that's also worth checking out. Um, so check that out, the Toledo War by Don Faber, the first Michigan-Ohio rivalry. That's going to do it for today. Thank you so much to John Shirk, our Grand Rapids attorney, getting it done for us for sending down the two-hearted American IPA uh, and just knowing his stuff and being ready to go. Um, And We had to have a Michigander on to balance it out, so I really appreciate John's work. He was a great guest to talk about a, a really cool subject, a little-known subject, the Toledo War. Again, check us out on the podcast Whiskey Business. We talked about this Michigan-Ohio War while well, we put down a few Michigan whiskey glasses with our friend Dino Tripodis from Sunny 95 at Radio FM Station here in Columbus. Uh, again, they're on iTunes. They're all over their podcast called Whiskey Business. They've got some great shows. And you can go back and listen to uh, our first appearance on that show back in March when we talked about Prohibition with Dino and why it's Ohio's fault. Thank you guys so much for joining us. it has been Episode 2. Our next episode, we're going to have another guest back for uh, a repeat visit. Beth Weinhart from the local history museum up in Westerville, Ohio, is going to talk to us about Agnes Meyer Driscoll and the Code Girls of World War II. Agnes Meyer Driscoll, the preeminent American codebreaker in World War I and World War II, her little-known life slowly coming to light, thanks to the efforts of Beth Weinhart um, and some other historians recently, about the female cryptologists in the U.S. Army and Navy uh, in World War I and II. Uh, Really cool story. It's going to be one of my favorite episodes for sure. We we met with her a couple weeks ago, uh, and we can't wait to get that one out to you. That'll be episode three. Ohio versus espionage it's Michigan week. So let's go bucks and beat the Wolverines, uh, up in Ann Arbor and finish this regular season off with a bang and win the big 10 East. Really looking forward to the game and looking forward to yet another victory to go 15 and two against the Wolverines in the 21st century. Thanks so much again to John for joining us, uh, rate and review the show guys. We don't have nearly enough reviews. Um, We will read your reviews on the air. So if you review the show on iTunes, we will read it. I promise. Don't forget, we got t-shirts for sale, 20 bucks. Email the show. Send me a Facebook message on our Facebook page. Um, I promise I'll get those up on the website, ohiovtheworldpodcast.com, so you can buy them directly off the website. Thanks to our friends at Mysteriosa Rock Art. But to close this episode, let's go Buck. Let's beat the state up north. Again.